We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, before we get into the podcast today and listen to Drew being a lunatic, I got to tell you guys about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast right here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Check out the description box to find out more. That's bwhustle.com slash join. Listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to It's a long, hard to another edition of the Rock Pile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill Season Ticket Holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger. And that... Chris, why don't you explain what that was? That's the uh, lead song that you hear on the 1990 Buffalo Bills video yearbook. I have it on VHS in my apartment. I know I'm not the only one. Maybe those of the older generation of Bills fans that listen to this still has it. Went thirteen and three that year. We're on the road to the Super Bowl. We finished thirteen and three. We're headed to the Super Bowl. <laughs> oh, that's a bold claim, Cotton. Let's see how it pans out, folks. I feel good. 
I feel good. And we have a packed show for you guys tonight. We have just we have some talk about what happened on Sunday and how we clinched the two seed. We have Brett Coleman of the Bootleg Football Podcast and the Film Room on YouTube uh, joining us to preview our matchup with the Colts. I see you sniffing the shot glass, Chris. Almost like you're scared of it. Folks, Chris had something almost inexplicable happen to him this weekend. I know, it's fantastic. So, new Year, New Me. Chris yeah. had this happen to him, and I felt like we had to talk about it on the podcast. First of all, Chris got a job. Yeah, oh yeah, we're not telling you where. We've already ran through that trouble. Yeah. Remember a couple of years ago? Hey, listen. For you. Hey, listen, don't come at the king if you... <laughs> yeah. You know how that goes. Yeah, I did get a job today. If you come so. at the king, you better not miss. So there's, there's that to, to drink for. But also, Saturday, my girlfriend comes over, and she came from her mom's and stepdad's, and her stepdad gave her a bottle of whiskey, and the only reason that he didn't want it is because it didn't fit in the round cubby on their wine shelf. So this bottle is oddly shaped. I don't want it. Here you go. So she brought it over. It's a bottle of Angel's Envy. Angel's Envy is like a, depending on where you live in the country, it's, it's like a 50 to 60. 50 to 60, $70 bottle of liquor. Chris, everything is coming up roses for you today. I know. I'd like to toast you, my friend. There you go. We'll do a shot of Angel's Envy. To you. Oh, oh that's nice. That is smooth. I like how you're not a liquor drinker. Well, I'll do a cocktail like Old Fashioned, a Manhattan, a Whiskey Sour. I've been getting into those. I mean, I got a lot of rye whiskeys over there, but that Angel's Envy is smooth. About as smooth as Josh Allen's deep ball. Oh, and it was on display as we walk into our Week 17 recap. The Buffalo Bills 56, the Dolphins 26. Here's your stats of the game, and I'm going to pretty much use them to tell the story of this one. Josh Allen, 18-25 for 72%, 224, three touchdowns, one pick, and a 122.3 rating. Matt Barkley, 6-13, of 13, 46%, 164, a third of which came on a single play, one touchdown, one pick, and an 86.2 rating. Now, Chris, that's not a good day, is it? No. Okay. Tua Tagovailoa, 35 of 58 for 60%, 361, one touchdown, three picks, a 62.5 rate. How do you rate worse than a backup quarterback? Here's Tua's first half split. 12 of 19 for 89 yards, no touchdowns, no picks. Lynn Bowden, the Dolphins' wide receiver, Slash running back slash quarterback had one pass for thirty two yards. Is isn't that a little embarrassing? Yeah, it is. Compared to Josh Allen's first half, eighteen to twenty five for seventy two percent. You know his whole stat line: three touchdowns, one pick. <laughs> Free safety Dean Marlowe, one tackle, two picks, and damn near a third one that he was visibly frustrated and missing. Wide receiver Gabe Davis, two catches, 107 yards, and a 50, what, a 51-yard touchdown catch? Yeah, that was a beautiful throw. Running back Antonio Williams, 12 carries, 63 yards, 5.2 yards per carry, two touchdowns, and one catch for 20 yards, 83 total yards from scrimmage, which is almost 
I'd say it's within striking distance of a season high for any Bills running back this season. Yeah, that's. Uh, I had no idea who that guy was. Maybe this week it'll be a. Uh, it'll be this year's version of. Do you start Foster or uh, Duke Williams? Do you start Antonio Williams or three down back T.J. Yeldon? <laughs> Tyler Matakevich, six tackles, four solo, two passes defended. The most in the season, and almost had an interception that would have been the first of his career. Bill's time of possession, or Bill's time of possession, when you look at their drives and what they accomplish with them, five touchdown drives of less than three minutes, three touchdown drives of less than two minutes. Sounds like the K gun, the J gun, or the A gun. It's just, it, what it is, is it's a cannon that blows your opponents off the deck. And this was a statement win ahead of the playoffs. Because that is what a dominant NFL team looks like, right? Yes. With the number two seed on the line, but options beside their own victory out there for them to obtain it. The Bills, the Bills could have very easily sat all their starters. You know, mark with a C. Spent the whole first half bitching incessantly about how we have to... Oh, Josh Allen got hit on that play. I can't believe we're still doing this. I, how many... Chris, you how wanted many to fight him. How many times did I threaten to take him outside? Yeah, usually you were threatening him in the first quarter, which is... Usually you wait till the uh, end of the game. Or, usually it's the end of the game after third, I've had a dozen cocktails. Yeah, or to the third quarter when you've hit your peak in cocktails and then also starts to kind of sink in that you owe someone a steak <laughs> that you want to take somebody outside and fight them. I just couldn't. He was driving me crazy talking about playing it safe with our players. And I, and I get it. There were some gasps when Teron Johnson went down with the shoulder and yep. we saw Matt Milano limping around, but everybody was Okay. Even Stefan Diggs, when he got that kind of cheap shot from behind, everything yeah. was okay. Everything worked out, right? I mean, what were you going to do? My counterpoint to this whole sit our starters and just rest, uh, protect everyone. Does anybody trust Cleveland? I don't. No, it's on us to go handle our business. And didn't Cleveland almost shit the bed the way Cleveland is prone to do it? Yeah, they almost screwed that up. They needed to stop a two-point conversion in order to avoid overtime. Yeah, they did. It was an onside kick that they almost... That's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. Instead, our team went out and handed the NFL's number one scoring defense the worst loss of their season and the worst loss sustained by any team holding the title of number one scoring defense since 1970. Uh, Yeah, what I texted you was... There's we almost beat points. them. We almost beat them back into the silent era. Yeah. <laughs> what made this win impressive wasn't the victory. It was the little storylines within the victory. First of all, Josh Allen outscored four quarters of Miami's offense in a single quarter. Our starters took a seat in our backup offense behind a strong rushing performance from an unknown player. And the Matt Barkley, I want to say at this point, it's become the patented just huck it deep offense. I mean, Chris, you remember that Jets game? Yeah, I had to drink a Seagram's opening drive. That was the fastest you've ever lost a Seagram's bet. Yep. Because you didn't think that Matt Barkley had the chutzpah. No. To throw it downfield. No. 
Guess who? Guess who's not scared? That dude. What? I, I wanted to quick aside. I was talking to a friend of mine at work about this this week. When you think about backup quarterbacks, there's a couple guys you can, and this is why Cam Newton won't have a job next year. You have two different choices you can make. You either have the guys who are so talented, the Teddy Bridgewaters or the um, Jameis Winstons, that if your starter goes down, they can provide you starter-level play for a week or two, and they can help your season stay afloat. Championship teams do that. You also have the start, the backup quarterback who teaches things. Matt Barkley was never a good starter. Never a good starter in the NFL. But him and Josh Allen bonded over this idea that Matt Barkley understood some concepts about playing quarterback that Josh Allen needed to become who he is today. And one of them is exactly what you saw from Matt Barkley this week. He throws a bad interception, right? Yep. That pick was terrible. It was an ill-advised throw into obvious coverage. He comes back on his very next pass attempt and goes 51 yards. Why? Because he knows you have to be able to shake off that play and not let it affect the next one. And Josh Allen has learned that from Matt Barkley over the years. of. That's why he, Josh Allen, politicked for Matt Barkley to stay around when they were talking about how can we massage our cap situation. It was just incredible to see Matt Barkley go out there, shake it off, throw a 51-yard dart to to Gabe Davis, who's just like, hey, remember this? I've been doing things that were outside of my college tape all year. Watch me go yard. This is what you saw me do on my highlight film. And then our backup defenders, in relief of our starters, who held the Dolphins to just a pair of field goals, they put on a show. First of all, Medikevich, they made him... They were so bad, they made him look like a real NFL linebacker instead of just a special teamer. He almost had his first career pick. Dean Marlowe, who's always been a decent depth option, he was out there laying wood on wide receivers to the point where Devontae Parker started alligator-arming passes when he saw... uh, uh, The one, he clearly, he saw Marlowe coming and didn't catch it. He was just like, nope, I'm going to turn away so I don't get hit. That's the... That's coaching, but that's a player who just, I'm going to play to the whistle, maybe a little bit beyond it, and I'm going to play till the end of the fourth quarter because that's what I've been coached to do. Is it any shock that that's a guy that, especially knowing Sean McDermott was a safety? Yeah, it's his bread and butter, just teaching the safety game. Is it a shock that he brought Dean Marlowe from Carolina to Buffalo with him? No. If that's the way Marlowe plays, it's not a shock that a guy who was nicknamed McNasty he probably has a deep down he has an affinity for Marlowe and we saw why on Sunday then he also had a pair of interceptions from Tua that prompted the tweet from someone that they said hey well silver lining for the 2020 season at least Tua is working on his chemistry with Marlowe I think that came from uh, Pat Cleary AJ Epinesa dropping fluidly into coverage on a play that saw Tua get confused and take a sack yeah, that guy's terrible. Yeah, he's awful. Remember? Oh, you see, he's an awful NFL player. I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> Chris, the anti-draft series is coming. We're going to do this this offseason. Drew's picks. Also, Josh Norman stepping in for Levi Wallace as cornerback number two. Yeah, he got flagged for being a little handsy 
which is a byproduct of him not being a high-level athlete anymore. But his physicality was on display both against the run and with Parker. Think about when he... Everyone says, oh, Parker slipped and fell. Josh Norman kind of... He got away with one there. But Josh Norman knocks him down and then picks sixes to a... And just takes it to the house. (laughs) When your depth comes out and just outperforms your opponent... That makes it a statement win from wire to wire. Not only did your starters outscore the final product, but so did your backups. <sighs> they believe at this point that they're so good that they can get away with that. That they can go out there and let their backups just dance all over some other team's starters. I don't know. The number one scoring defense in the league, Chris. Yeah. I don't even know what to make of that. And then if you're a Miami fan, think about that. The NFL's most expensive secondary. The rookie quarterback who was tank for Tua was the thing that Miami fans were trying to accomplish. They have a guy who they thought was coach of the year. They seem to have all of those things that people thought made them not only a great football team, but one of the better teams in the AFC. Certainly a playoff caliber one. It was all just a matter of a few bad breaks, and every fan spent their weeks trying to explain them with stats or excuses about game flow, uh, drops or suppressing to his stats, Bob, 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 Bob. And yet you come into Buffalo with your season on the line, and you get overmatched in every single phase of the game. First of all, your secondary, torched. Torched. By three different receivers. Your quarterback in the future, he looked poor. Couldn't throw it on field outside of scripted drives. You got outplayed by another team's backups. Your team, it was gross. And then they went on to allow a punt return touchdown. Even that phase of your game isn't up to snuff. Blake Ferguson, brother of Reed Ferguson, whiffs, whiffs badly on the tackle (laughs) Of McKenzie as he's scampering around the field. <sighs> Do you not feel for them a little bit? No, it's Miami. I don't like Miami. I don't like Miami, but our hero of the game is somebody that you also don't like, and that's wide receiver Isaiah McKenzie. Here's the deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence, and nobody can hang with my stuff. Uh, you know, I'm just a, just a big, hairy American winning machine. Everybody on Twitter got after me. It was the wide receiver version of that Matt Flynn game against the Packers against the Lions. It's the last week of the season. I don't. I, Chris, look, isn't no. this the guy that you complain is good for nothing but jet sweeps? Yeah. Okay. Here, I'll drink next week if he had, he had sixty five yards receiving on Sunday. If he has sixty six on Saturday, I'll drink a Seagrams. Done. I'll hold you to that. Yeah, because he's not going to do shit. Okay. You seem very confident. Is the whiskey making you a little... Uh... No, because we have <laughs> other options. Uh, let me tell you, uh, this is what's going to happen. Diggs is going to play. John Brown's going to play. Gabe Davis is going to play. All of our starters are going to play. He's not He's not good for anything but jet, jet sweeps. <sighs> when you're the fifth player on the depth chart at wide receiver, no one thinks you're dangerous. Not even Chris. And that's why McKenzie's performance was not only special, but a wake-up call for every single defensive coordinator in the AFC playoff field. I mean, sure, in in an offense that 
in any passing offense, there's only so many targets to go around. But Josh Allen and Brian Dable can find a way to make even that fifth guy dangerous. And if that's the case, good luck to you when you watch us trot out four and five wide receiver sets. Something we do at some of the highest rates in the NFL. And then our zero of the week, it's Brian's head, Dolphins head coach Brian Flores. You folks fell on your face. You get an F minus in my book. I say this all the time. When things go catastrophically wrong across the board and there's no singular unit to blame it on or blame because the failure is just so widespread. When you watch a team quit, you have to elevate all of the blame to the head coaching position. Chris, how many times McDermott was the zero on this show once or twice this year? Yeah. And how many times off air have you referred him to Dick Duran 2.0? I, I'd like to plead. You can't plead anything. It's not pleading the fifth, but it's pleading blood alcohol content. <laughs> Listen, if I'm pitching a if I'm pitching a point two, you can't take me seriously. I'm just mad. I'm just mad about football things, and I'm drunk enough to not be allowed to operate heavy equipment. <laughs> With that in mind, it was interesting to me that a guy getting all the love, both in South Beach and around the NFL, for so many things found himself in this predicament. I mean, the Dolphins' sudden resurgence defensively. He's being touted as a great, great communicator. Squeezing the most from the talent that he has on hand, people were pounding the table for him to be a Coach of the Year candidate. So it's hilarious to me to watch that team just implode, to crash into the mountain like the plane in the movie Alive. And I don't know who's going to survive the wreckage of that. I really don't. I mean, what? ESPN tried to fire Chang Gailey prematurely. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> that's, that's pretty great. That's pretty great. ESPN tried to fire Chang Gailey before it actually happened. From the effort of his players to the execution of his coaching staff, and in a million little places in between, like the lack of per- perfect example. Here's how unprepared, or maybe overprepared, or I don't even know what they did wrong, but it didn't work. Here's a perfect example of how that team got beat by themselves. McKenzie, on the John Brown touchdown, yards per pass on Twitter did a great job of breaking this down. (sighs) McKenzie drops inside as a blocker on this play, right? He split out wide as a wide receiver, But he comes back across in motion and instead of coming around the formation, stays in as a blocker because he he realizes, not because the offensive coordinator told him to, but because he sees that there's too many, there's too many rushers. So he stays home when he stays home to help block the outside cornerback says alert. Alert, alert. There must be a quick out coming. There must be a hot route pass coming if they're picking up all the blitzes and they're they're keeping wide receivers home. And the two seconds that it took that guy to realize that that wasn't the case and it was just McKenzie making an eyesight adjustment to pressure, it froze him long enough for John Brown to get behind him. And Chris, once John Brown gets behind you, you don't catch him, do you? No. No, so he's wide open. Yeah, for he's that. like Roadrunner. He's wide open for that 30-yard touchdown pass in the back of the end zone. That lack of focus and lack of preparation for those types of things led to his team suffering its worst loss of the season 
And I think the franchise's worst loss from an emotional standpoint in decades. Because, Chris, that team hasn't had... They haven't had a win-and-in scenario, right? Yeah. And for as long as I can remember, they made it when they beat the Buffalo Bills on Christmas Eve. That was probably it. But when you were going up against Rex Ryan, who only has 10 men on the field and can't explain why, are you shocked that you won that game? No. No. They haven't had stiff competition, and this has been a, this was a shock to them and their fan base. If... I guess I just look at this as if Flores can accept 16 weeks of accolade and praise, he sure as hell can take the blame for him and his staff blowing their season. I think they deserve that. And Chris, I'll leave you with my final thoughts. I'm going to keep it short and sweet. 13 wins. Playoff momentum. Home field advantage. Swagger cultivated from over a month of embarrassing teams on primetime TV in front of the entire country. The Buffalo Bills have it all right now. Everything is working for them. Our quarterback is playing a level of football that almost no quarterback can match. It took Mahomes a whole game to do what Allen did in a single quarter of football against Miami. Our defense is locked in, hungry for turnovers, And our front seven is a far more imposing unit at the line of scrimmage than the one that we saw for the first three months of the season. And we have a head coach whose quiet intensity, and I'd call it absurd focus. I mean, it's not likely to let anybody on the roster forget what's at stake over the next month. Everyone assumed that the other shoe would drop at some point over the last month, didn't they? Yeah. All these primetime games, all these things, you assume eventually, hey, they're going to drop a ball somewhere. Have they? (laughs) I mean, they they went into a game where they only had a little something to play for by comparison to their opponent, and they demolished them in embarrassing fashion. The Bills are arguably the most dangerous team in the AFC right now, if not the whole NFL. Football is fun, and life is good. Cheers to the next step in the evolution of this Buffalo Bills team that we've seen over the last 17 weeks. And whatever might lie beyond that, I'll toast you, brother. And that brings us to our wild card preview. Chris, the Colts are coming here to Buffalo to play the Buffalo Bills in a game that we can't attend. We missed the cutoff. Too bad it's not snowing like the last time they came to town. Oh, my God. The Colts playing the Bills. The time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard. It's going to be aired on CBS. The place, Bills Stadium in Orchard Park in front of 6,700 fans that I'm sure will make it sound like 40,000. On the call, Ian Eagle and Charles Davis. Are they the CBS C-Squad? B. B? Okay. The right, yeah. That makes me feel better. And the line is currently the Bills minus six and a half. That's a big line. I know. Frank Reich coming to town. He might be able to cover that. Frank Reich. Injuries to watch. For the Buffalo Bills, wide receiver Cole Beasley is doubtful with a knee injury. TJ Yeldon, we don't know if he's been activated off the COVID list. That's about it, right? Yeah. Nice. Then you look across the fence. 
The Colts injury report. Chris, I had to. I had Are to, you going to read all of these names? No, but I had to put a graphic in here. I want you to yeah, estimate I, how many I, names are on that. Uh, 15? <laughs> That's what it looks like. Oh, there is a whole slew of Colts players who are on this list. The Colts offensive line is undergoing a shuffle. First of all, they lost their starting offensive tackle, Costanzo, for the 22. season. They lost him for the Costanzo. 22 people on that list? Yeah, I just counted. Damn. They lost Costanzo for the season before week 17. Their backup left tackle, Holden, also missed with week 17. And listed here, out. Quentin Nelson has been practicing at left tackle, and that's how bad it's gotten. Backup caliber players potentially at left tackle bears watching if you're Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison. And then, ahead of their game versus Jacksonville, the Colts gave a whole week of veteran rest to six different players, including linebacker Darius Leonard, wide receiver T.Y. Hilton, offensive lineman Quentin Nelson. I mean, there's not going to be any of that this week, Chris. And they didn't beat the one-win Jaguars by that much. No. But they gave their most important players a whole week of rest? Doesn't that kind of fly in the face of like, hey, resting your starters doesn't work? No, I'm not a fan of, of that. No. There, there won't be any resting this week, I can promise you that. And whatever elements they're nursing, they're just going to have to fight through it. And I think one of the more important things is Colts cornerback Rock Yassin is projected to miss his second straight game with a concussion. And then, if I can add one more entry to the injury report for this week, it's going to be Chris's liver because he owes Eric Harris an ice-cold Seagram's. I don't remember it, but sure. (laughs) If he remembers it, this man, a six-pack because he lost a bet to us, he's an elephant that never forgets. All right, well, for Eric, I'm drinking the classic lime margarita, so. God, and while while he kills himself with that thing, I'm going to introduce tonight's guest who's going to help walk us through this matchup, Mr. Brett Coleman. Brett Coleman. I don't know what inferior swill this is, but I ordered a Lagavulin. The film room. Take a sip. It's not smoky at all. YouTube.com slash Brett Coleman. Yeah, it's Lagavulin. Come on. That's not Lagavulin. Mr. Coleman, host of the Bootleg Football Podcast, creator of the film room over on YouTube, and craft cocktail connoisseur. How are you doing this evening? Doing wonderful, boys. Thanks for having me back. Congrats on uh, making the playoffs and actually, you know, being a contending team for the first time in what decades? Ah, uh, since I could legally buy beer. This is the first time that I could legally <laughs> buy beer that the team doesn't make me want to drink an eighteen pack every time I see them. So that's that that's worth something in and of itself. For any of you out there who are listening to this podcast who maybe have been living under a rock and haven't caught his previous appearances, Brett is an AFC South aficionado as a long-suffering Texans fan, which I got to say before we get started here, how rough was that game to watch? A, or, or are you just emotionally checked out at this point? You'll have to be more specific about which game. <laughs> watching your team, all of them. Watching your team take a lead. Watching your team take a late lead against the Tennessee Titans, potentially to spoil their division crown, only to watch them throw a, just a bomb down the field to AJ Brown. <laughs> just get right down there, doink one in off the upright, and everybody goes home happy on the Tennessee bench. 
And J.J. Watt's still just sitting there shaking his head. Like, have, have you checked out or do, do these losses still hurt? I mean, I'm... I, I'm emo- I've been emotionally checked out for a while. The only real emotions I still have is just feeling bad for Deshaun and JJ and some of the other veterans on the team that have been around when the team was good. Unfortunately, Deshaun, like, you know, he's made the playoffs, but he's never, like, had a great team around him like some of the early 2010s Texans team, you know, 2011, 2012. It was a dominant, dominant roster that, uh, you know, he he's never had the benefit of that kind of team around him. And, the fact that he led the league in passing yards this year, 4,800, you know, 70% completions, 33 touchdowns, only seven picks, uh, not to mention all the rushing production too. And for him to still be on a four-win team despite playing, like, inarguably a top three quarterback in the league, you could say, well, at least top four, like that kind of foursome of Mahomes and Rodgers and Allen – and Wilson and Deshaun. I mean, you can kind of order him any way you want to, but he's not lower than four. And to have a you know four-win season out of elite quarterback play, like you don't see that every day. You don't see a team have that kind of guy under center and still be so inept and and, and able to win a game. It's just remarkable to me. And uh, I got about four or five weeks into the season where I realized, like, yeah, it's going to be that kind of year. Like, O'Brien got fired. That was great. But I had zero expectations after that. Well, good thing you guys got a third overall pick. <laughs> oh, God. Of course. <laughs> you, you know what? I hope the Dolphins draft some sort of all pro now at third overall that just wrecks your shit for 10 years for that. <laughs> <laughs> We are indeed the Pettiest Bills podcast. So with that in mind, you've had a lot of time to put eyes on the Indianapolis Colts, and you you can bring a little bit of insight to this conversation we're about to have as we try to preview our upcoming wildcard matchup. First of all, one of the things I want to touch on, there's this, there's this theory or this feeling, emotion that exists amongst Bills fans right now, that somehow the Buffalo Bills being given the very first time slot on the very first day of the NFL postseason is somehow a slight. It's being perceived as a slight. I, do you see it that way as an outsider who has no emotion attached to either one of these football teams? I don't think they did it because of you guys. I think they did it because of the Colts. <laughs> like, I, I think you guys are immensely entertaining to watch. You have one of the most devoted fan bases nationwide in the entire country. Like... If anything, the Colts are the team that the league is kind of like, you can call it hiding, I guess. You know, the Texans used to have that all the time. Like, we go up against the Chiefs in the playoffs, and the Chiefs, you know, uh, one of the most entertaining teams in the league to watch, and they're they're playing on a Saturday morning because they're going against the Houston Texans. I I don't think that was an indictment on you guys. I think it was an indictment on the Colts. We got that treatment last year because we got that treatment last year. Houston and Buffalo, first Saturday game. That's, well, it's a written yeah. rule in the NFL that Houston gets the ESPN game for the wild card weekend. Well, I think it's, you know, the league also intentionally, I think, puts teams that they don't expect to make it that far in that <laughs> slot. But I don't think it, I don't think that was about you. I think it's about Indy. I think they expect you guys to beat Indy and rather comfortably. See, and, and I think they would, I think they would rather not have a beat down in prime time. I'm glad that I'm, I'm glad that our listeners are hearing that come from you because I have a three pronged theory on this. It's one, 
it's the time slot is a knee jerk reaction to what just happened between us and the Dolphins. The at yes. the time number one scoring defense in the NFL. Uh, we we actually knocked them out of that spot, and I think we actually knocked them down to to like third, just with that one game. Um, so when that happened, that influences the decision. Market size comes into play, and we've talked in this yes. podcast about how it's egregious that the NFC East continues to get primetime games when for the last decade they've played a lot of painfully mediocre football. But they're going up against Brady. Plus, this is the first time well, the NFL has put a 1 o'clock Saturday game on. But in terms of per capita market size, you'd be hard-pressed to argue that Buffalo and Indy could draw as many eyeballs as... Anything the NFC East could drum up just on the basis of people. Like, the, the population size isn't there for either one of our cities. And then the third prong is that the league is legitimately afraid of that people will tune out by the second half when the Bills do their best impersonation of Wilt Chamberlain uh, and Metal Arc Lemon and just start dunking from the free throw line on them like the Harlem Globetrotters. And it just becomes a dog of a game. I, I, I've thought that since I saw the time slot, and I don't know why people are taking this personally. If anything, it should be perceived as a compliment to the Bills because they feel like this game is going to be a snoozer. And yet, no football game is really a snoozer. I mean, we talked with our friend Reed Ferguson, the long snapper for the Bills, and he argued with us earlier this year that from a fan perspective, teams can be more talented than other teams. But in reality, aside from coaching, the talent level from one team to the from the thirty first team in the NFL to the tenth team in the NFL. If you looked at the standings, the overall talent level probably isn't that far off. A lot of it's coaching and quarterback. What can you do with those two spots? That usually dictates who's great and who's not. I feel like <laughs> on any given Sunday, everybody has a shot. And so with that, we look at the new. We look at the Colts. And when you look at DVOAs coming into Week 16, they're right in the teens, middle of the pack for everything. Rush defense, pass defense, offense. Who are the 2020 Indianapolis Colts, Brett? I mean, if you had to try to give a brief synopsis of what you think that roster and team is. Good defense. Uh, started out as an elite defense and then just became a good one, I think, by the end of it. Almost like the opposite of the Bills, where it started out real shaky and then they got good towards the end of the year. Uh, neither team has an elite defense. But I think the difference is the Bills have an elite of the elite offense. Can't run the ball for shit, but they can throw it at will, so it kind of <laughs> doesn't really matter. Uh, whereas the Colts, I think they have offense in spurts. But it's highly inconsistent. You know, they'll break off a big run every now and then. Naheem Hines will have a big game every now and then. Uh, you know, you'll hit, you'll get Phil hitting like a deep crosser every now. But it's not. You kind of hold your breath. You know, every time the Colts have the ball. Uh, and I, I think the fact that you know their last what six weeks uh, of the season. It was, okay, we're putting up like 26 points. We're putting up 24 points. Like they had a 28-point game against the Jaguars, who are literally the worst defense in the league, arguably besides Detroit. But they went up against, you know, the Raiders, the Texans twice, uh, the Titans, which are a bad defense, and, and the Jaguars, which are bad. Like in their last six weeks, they went up against 
literally four of the worst passing defenses in the league, and their best scoring output was 28 points. You know, you go up against the Ravens midseason, they're putting up 10. You know, you go up against um, – when they had a whole bunch of injuries, they went up against um, the uh, – uh, what do you call them? The Bengals and put up 31. Again, a bad defense. But they went up against the Bears a couple weeks before that who had a good defense and they put up 19. Like anytime they go up against a good defense, it's less than 20 points. The uh, the Bills specifically have a good defense. Not a great one, but a good one. And I don't think that the Colts have the offense to keep up with them, particularly through the air. Like the back half of their season, starting with the Packers game, the Colts I'm talking about, like their point differential wasn't great. Their average offensive output wasn't great. Like the, the Bills are averaging like 47 points a game in the last three weeks. There's no way the Colts are going to match that. See, so even though they have a good defense, so does Buffalo. But one team is so far ahead on the other side of the ball. Like I just I don't think this is an even matchup. I mean, I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you because when I look at their team and I see that you're an 11 win team. You've got a soft schedule with two wins over teams that had winning records, Tennessee and Green Bay. And they lost to every single team in the current AFC playoff field. Literally every team that they played that are currently in the AFC playoffs, they have, they, they took the L. And they're up and down statistically from one week to the next. So let's dig into that a little bit because it seems like a lot of the problems are rooted on offense. And I want to ask about what this passing attack is under Phillip Rivers. Now, I dug up some stats that I think... <clears throat> I, I want to know more about he's sixth in the NFL in time to throw, which means that from snap to delivery, he's hustling the ball out. I mean, he's what I, I would think he's just behind Ben Roethlisberger and a couple other Tom Brady, a couple other older, not very mobile quarterbacks. Who well, are still, he has to. Exactly. And that's <laughs> my point. There's an onus here of you don't have a choice but to get the ball out quickly because you're old and you can't move. The days of, I don't even know, I mean, Brett, would it be unfair of me to say that watching him scramble for 10 yards might, like, that would be a shock to most people if you saw well, him Well, it would because 10. he had one scramble the entire season, fun fact. It that, was for three yards in week one, and then he never scrambled again for the next four months. He's Like, also, I swear to God, the Colts, the, the Bills, you don't even really have to rush him. Because he's not going to run away. You just compress the pocket. You make him get the ball out quick. You rally and tackle. Like this team's not going to mount a 15 play drive and match, you know, touchdown for touchdown with Josh Allen. It's just flat out not going to happen. Well, that's like again, you're talking about matching throw for throw. He's 24th in completed air yards per pass. It just three point six. It's not going to happen. Josh Allen is fifth in the NFL. Josh Allen's yeah. fifth. Phillip Rivers is 24th in completed air yards per pass, which indicates that he's throwing a ton of short passes around the line of scrimmage very quickly. When you marry those two stats up, you start to get an idea of what this offense is. There are a lot of short passes, a lot of, hey, we're going to dump this out quickly in order to keep Phillip Rivers upright. And that gets even harder when your offensive line is absorbing the injuries that they currently are. And I think the damning part for this, when you look at their passing attack, they're 22nd and third down conversions, which means you're not a dynamic passing unit if you get caught behind the sticks. So how do you foresee, knowing what the Bills have on defense, how do you, how, how do you think that the Colts are going to try to attack the Bills' defense through the air? Because I think that guys like Milano and guys like Edmonds, 
they're going to make a lot of those quick hitting, short, shallow crosses, quick slants. A lot of that stuff evaporates when you play our defense. Oh, Milano's going to kill him. Like he's he's the X factor there over the middle if they want to attack this defense. Uh, well, let me ask you: Is Taron Johnson going to play? Oh, he came right back after that injury. He was he finished the game. Okay, I I might go after Taron Johnson with Michael Pittman. I think that's a good matchup for them. Um, I think Levi Wallace is is going to play as well. And he started out the year really garbage, but he kind of played a little bit better. But I still. I still think that, uh, you know, Pascal's a rough matchup for him. Basically throw at everyone that isn't Trey White or the linebackers. Um, they, I don't think they're going to have enough time to really test the safeties deep anyway, so it's going to be a lot of quick game. You're going to see 15 freaking slants to Pittman over the middle. Guarantee it. Uh, they're probably going to try to influence the linebackers to get out of the way with the run back and then throw uh, with the running game and then try to throw like a play action slant to the backside because that's kind of their moneymaker. But even then, you can only do that so much. And if Josh Allen's marching down the fields and putting up 21 points in the first half, you don't have time to do that. You don't have time to mount these long, arduous drives to maybe get a field goal out of it. Well, I mean, like that, that goes back to a stat we talked at the top of the show. The Bills against Miami, who were the NFL's number one secondary and uh, highest paid secondary anyway, and one of the best pass defenses in football. Josh Allen orchestrated, well, the team, five touchdown drives of less than three minutes. Yeah. You don't compete with that if you're playing that style of offense that you're describing. And, uh, and when you look at the, the, the Colts' defense, too, just since we're talking about defenses, like part of the reason why Allen lit up Miami both times because they play a lot of man coverage, and Allen is really good at shredding man coverage. And Dable's perfectly fine with just calling deep crosses to Diggs and Gabe Davis and all these guys because Allen throws a better deep cross than almost every other quarterback in the league. Like He's been phenomenal at it this year, and it absolutely kills Miami when a team is able to call up man beaters with an elite receiving core, like there's nothing a good secondary can do about that. Like, I don't care if you have Darrell Revis and like, you know, prime champ Bailey out there. If you got Stefan Diggs running a crossing route, he's going to get open against man coverage. That's just how the route functions. It's called a man beater for a reason. So they were able to exploit that against Miami. Absolutely kill them twice. Whereas you look at the, the Colts defense, they run cover two more than any other defense in the league. And Josh Allen completes, uh, it's like 75% of his passes against cover two, like 8.8 yards per attempt, which is great. He, he had, a, if I remember correctly, he had more picks than touchdowns against cover two, but it's like, what, two versus three. So it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a low enough number. It doesn't really matter that much. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he completes a lot of balls and he gets a lot of yards against cover two, like once you get down in the red zone, if you're getting yards against cover two and then you get Josh Allen down in the red zone where you can make stuff happen with the run game. Um, Dable, I think, has very creative red zone passing concepts like this is well, the Colts are just a flat out bad matchup here. And they that's what I was going to say. Let's dig into that a little bit, because we're talking about the quality of the defense. I mean, we know that this team has a really solid defensive line. They've got Justin Houston, who he's an older player, but he's still really talented. That trade for DeForest Buckner gave them one of the more dynamic interior presences at D-Tackle who can do some of the things that I think Bills fans, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, were kind of looking for Ed Oliver to do in that he could moonlight as a defensive end at times because of his size and his, just pow- his mix of speed and power works well enough that sometimes you could slide him to D-end 
and it, you can create all kinds of mismatches across the D-line. They seem to be able to do that and be solid versus the run while giving a little bit of an upper echelon pass rush. I, and Autry has actually been pretty good for them. I think his run-stop rate is pretty high. I, he's been a presence for them on the D-line. Beyond that, I don't know much about this defense, but what I've looked into isn't good. You were talking about their secondary. I was looking at the numbers last week against the Jaguars. Rocky Sin being out killed them. I mean, the Colts, mm-hmm. I mean, they've had solid statistics, you know, aggregate statistics in terms of playing the pass. But against the Jags, they shadowed, uh, was it Chris Conley with Xavier Rhodes. And in trying to shadow him around the field, he still allowed five catches for 57 yards and a touchdown. Conley couldn't hold Stephon Diggs' jockstrap. So there's no way that you can play our wide receiver group with that kind of approach. I mean, and and not for nothing, but Nick Wright would not even Nick Wright would compare Mike Glennon to Josh Allen. He might in size. Nah, but that neck length, <laughs> I mean, that dude's a giraffe. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to, and then what kill play, TJ Carey, I think he scares everybody. He's a backup for a reason. I mean, he's, he's, he reminds me a lot of, you talked about Levi Wallace struggling a little bit. TJ Carey strikes me as this kind of guy, this guy who he can hold down a starting gig for a while, but it doesn't mean he's going to do it well. Or at least he's not going to be as solid as you would want a number two cornerback to be on an NFL team playing the boundary. And can we agree on that? Yeah, and and the thing again, just because of what they play, it's a lot of too high. It's a lot of zone. Like they they allow a lot, uh, a very high percentage of catches to be made on them, and then you know they'll they'll rally and tackle. Like their top four corners are all over fifty five percent catch rate. Uh, whereas you kind of want it to be like 52 to 50 or under. So again, it's, it's very much like we're going to play over the top of you. You know, we'll play cover two. We'll, we'll do press. We'll sink. We'll do all that kind of stuff, but we're going to get the corners involved in the run game. We're going to try to not give up deep balls. If you want to dink and dunk and we'll rally and tackle all that kind of stuff. Like it's classic cover two. Mm-hmm. That's what Matt Eberflus's background is. And they've done it well this year, but like as we saw with uh, the the Seattle game, as we saw with the Rams game, like Josh Allen is perfectly fine with taking what he gets until all of a sudden he'll get it all, and he'll just kind of lull you into this false sense of security. And again, like with the with the Seahawks game, they started out throwing it's like what like eighteen of their first twenty plays, where it's like. Dinking, dunking, dinking, dunking. All of a sudden, double move, deep shot down the boundary. Like, they have no qualms about playing that style. And I think while the Colts wish they could play that style against Buffalo, Allen's flat out better at it. He's more efficient at it. He's more explosive with it. And if you're playing cover two, like one of the main things that beats cover two is a quarterback with a really strong arm that can fit the ball into those very tight windows down the boundary or deep in the middle of the field. And he does that. Like, it's not a good schematic matchup. It's not a good talent matchup. Even if you try to play man, like, good luck covering Stephon Diggs, even with, you know, uh, you know Xavier Rhodes, who's had a good year this year. He's not covering Stephon. No. Hell no. <laughs> no, it's going to take, so take a group I effort. Think, other than the D-line, they got nothing. 
Like they have to have the game of their life from the defensive line to basically just make Allen uncomfortable and make Allen run. Like they're better off making Allen run than letting Allen throw. Well, and it's point. crazy to me that w- to watch Chris. One thing that stood out, and we've talked about it multiple times this season. The amount of time Josh Allen is one of like the league leaders. He's in the top six or seven for time to throw from the pocket. I've actually seen him make a ham sandwich in the pocket and then <laughs> throw the ball. The guy's got so much time. He stands there and you can watch him set his feet, reset his feet, move, go to his fourth read, come back to his second read, reset his feet. All of this stuff's happening because he has so much time. And part of that is his own ability to when he gets out on the run. Part of it's just the way this offensive line has been built. And you spoke to the fact that we can't run the ball worth a damn. You're right. We have had a lot of struggles with that this season. And it's come back to bite us in the ass a few times in various games. So one of the things that everyone says, when it comes time for playoffs, you got to run the ball. But what we have is an offensive line that's more slanted towards pass pro than it is towards run blocking. That's just the reality of things. We've got a couple good run blocking offensive linemen, but... I think that that's why we throw so much is because that's what this team is built to do. Now, when you see a team like Indy, I mean, but we're no slouches, and you've got kids like Zach Moss who are starting to come on a little bit. Indy is only 19th in the NFL in third down from conversion percentage on defense, and we're the best in the NFL. We're tops. Nobody else can touch us. I think that alone is a glaring indictment of how one-sided this matchup could get. Because we do find a way. I think I think at one point, Chris, they talked about Josh Allen leading the league in throws from like third and eight, third and nine, third and ten plus. That could be right. For first downs. It was incredible. What is it about their linebacking core and safeties that makes them susceptible to that stuff? Are you talking about the, the Colts linebacking core? Yeah, what is it about them that makes them so susceptible to giving up these third downs? Because it seems, I mean, conventional wisdom would say, hey, you're going to do short yardage stuff, and then they're going to come in and punch punch the ball across for a, a one-yard pickup, or you're going to play this cover two prevent style, give up three yards on first down, give up four yards on second, and then it's third and three or third and two, and the other team just picks it up pretty regularly. Well, that's, that's the, the thing with zone coverage and I kind of mentioned it before like Allen's thrown more picks than touchdowns against cover two but his completion percentage and his yards are super high because he's the kind of guy that can move people with his eyes out of the way in zone coverage which is one of the best ways to beat zone coverage is you know kind of glancing one way getting a linebacker to shift his body weight and then you hit him on the other side with a route right behind him over his left shoulder whatever it is like Allen's very very good at moving safeties at moving linebackers at kind of dictating coverage you know doing the whole bait and switch stuff and I think again he'll get caught every now and then getting a little bit too aggressive because his arm is so good and he'll throw those picks but it only happened three times all year and we just have to hope it doesn't happen Saturday but Overall, he's better against zone than than you would think. It's not just, oh, he can shred man because they run crossing routes. Like, no, he's really good against zone too. And so when you look at the amount of third downs that Indy gives up in zone, it's predominantly because quarterbacks do that to them. They move these linebackers out of the way. They move the safeties out of the way because they play so much zone. And then they'll create voids in the defense and they'll, you know, they'll convert. Like, that's why Deshaun Watson with – Chad Hansen is a number one receiver uh, when Cooks was out, was able to shred them. And, and were it not for two late fumbles in both of those games, they could have gone over 
against a very untalented Texans team because good quarterbacks that know how to manipulate zone coverage absolutely kill them. Josh Allen qualifies as that. He's got better weapons than Deshaun. He's got better protection than Deshaun. He's got better coaching than Deshaun and a better defense than Deshaun. If Indy can barely survive twice against Houston, how the hell are they going to beat Buffalo? And that's the question everyone's asking themselves. Chris, total sidebar, do you remember when Hanson was supposed to be uh, the savior of the Jets franchise? Hanson? Or, or whatever whatever his name was. Your white wide receiver there. Chad, Chad Hanson. <laughs> Chad Hanson. I, people From talk- uh, Cal. Yeah. People thought that he was going to be the savior of the Jets uh well, not, That's wide receiver. Well, as soon as you said Hanson, my my brain shifted to Mbop. <laughs> of course it did. I mean, Chris the Mohawk, the nineties. <laughs> I don't have a Mohawk. You're you're the worst. You're the worst human. I, so the one thing that scares me about them, and I want to know your opinion on Taylor. Taylor at running back. He he started the season and he kind of got in the coach's doghouse. And Frank Reich kind of slow played this kid. I know because I took him on every single one of my fantasy teams. And he got me killed early in the season. And then, of course, I left him benched for some of his biggest games. But over the last month, he's really come on as a strong player for this team behind this offensive line. The Bills currently are ranked fourth in the NFL in missed tackles. We've gotten better. I think a lot of that was a byproduct of us being so bad at the beginning of the year. Uh, Yeah, thanks, A.J. Klein. Mm-hmm. Chris, AJ Klein, mm-hmm. diving all over the place. Yeah, I remember there was a time when I told people that I would trust Chris more out there on the field. With he he had he threw his back out, and I said I'd still trust you with a butterfly net more than AJ Klein in coverage. Like that's that's <laughs> the way this was going. He was missing tackles left and right. We've gotten a little bit sounder there, but how dangerous is Jonathan Taylor to us this weekend? Well, uh, when you look at how Indy runs the ball, it's a lot of power. It's a lot of inside zones, a lot of stuff between the tackles. So they're going to be running right at Edmonds and Milano, who combined over the entire last month of the season missed four tackles. All four of them were from Tremaine, but still he averages (laughs) like one missed tackle a game. It's not that bad. You know, so if you're running against Edmonds and Milano, Milano didn't miss a single tackle. In fact, he only missed five all year and he played in, what, 11 games? Like, that's pretty insane. They're very sound tackling at the linebacker position. And obviously the defensive front, I think, has has bowed up a little bit towards the end of the year and, and they're not getting blown off the ball like they used to in the beginning of the year where they couldn't take on a double team to save their life. They're better in that area. So... When I look at this Colts run game and how it matches up schematically, I don't think we're going to see as many missed tackles this week as we saw last week against Jacksonville, especially like the one where uh, uh, John, he's like, I think it was number 47 for the Jags, some backup linebacker that he just shook out of his shoes in the hole and <laughs> didn't even touch him. And then he just took off. He rushed for like 250 and a huge chunk of it was just in that one run. You're not going to see that against Milano. Like he just doesn't miss tackles. So again, I, I like the Colts run game, but I like what I've seen in the improvement in the Bills run defense, particularly along the defensive line, being able to anchor better against double teams. And with the linebacking core, now that they actually have their guys healthy again, are not missing tackles as much as the backups were. So Again, this is another area where I'm like, 
if you play this game in September, sure, I would say Indy's got a really good shot. In fact, I probably would have favored Indy in September. You play it in January, no way. <laughs> well, I remember you were the one who came on this show and said that you you thought Milano was the X factor for us against against the Chiefs. And sure enough, yes. Edwards Hilaire <laughs> at nine yards a carry ran the ball down our throats because we didn't have a linebacker who could get who could beat him to a spot or who could efficiently tackle but also cover. And with Milano healthy, I think he is really the key to what we do on the defensive side of the ball. Now, I am not half the analyst you are. <laughs> That's what you guys over on the Bootleg Football Podcast. I listen to you and your co-host. What's his name? Is it EJ? Yeah, EJ Snyder. Oh, okay, because I, I was like, if it's PJ and I call him EJ, I'm going to feel like an ass. But I was, I'm glad I got that one right because I listen to it. I'd say pretty regularly. You guys lose me sometimes, not, not just because it's hard to, it's not hard to listen to. It's just that I start trying to fact check things that you're saying, or I start, to, I hear something you say, and I try to extrapolate that out into something that I think about the Bills. Here's my attempt at some analysis. When I look at the Colts' pace of play, I can see this trend that seems to come back and bite them in the ass. They're third and, what is it? In, they're in the top six, Chris, for first half and second half, uh, first quarter and second quarter scoring. They're 18th and 17th in the NFL in third and fourth quarters, respectively. Now, if you go back and look at that affecting these games, they lost to Pittsburgh because their team got grossly outproduced in the second half. Yes, they took some penalties, Mm -hmm. but they got beat over the top, and they allowed Pittsburgh to get a lot of, I want to say, in the hash mark passing. Like they, they gave up the middle of the field a lot more than I think they thought they would because they started playing prevent defense way too early in that game. The game to make the playoffs this weekend was dicey because they got a lead over a very poor Jacksonville offense, and then their offense ground to a halt, and it was a six-point game with six minutes to go in the third quarter. Houston isn't a great team. That's right, your boys. But in both those games against the Texans in the past month, they were close because the Colts scored more in the first and second. And in the case of their second matchup, they actually got outscored by Houston in the second half before they hit that last-minute score to come back and win it. (laughs) What is it to your eye that makes them so lethargic? Because to me, I think it's a lack of... I think it's one of these things where Reich does such a good job of game planning that when he comes in with some scripted plays and a cohesive game plan, it works for a little while, and they can chew up opposing defenses. But then the second that they get figured out, they don't have any elite playmakers to help them get over the top of that. And so their offense just grinds to a halt and they have to hang on for dear life for a victory. Am I reading some of this correctly? I mean, it's it's very similar to, and keep in mind, I am not saying that Frank Reich is Adam Gase. Frank Reich is a great coach. Adam Gase is a terrible coach. But the Jets scored on eight straight opening drives this year. What? Because... What? I swear to God. No. Because... For all their faults, their first 15 plays were always very well scripted. They came out against the Rams, an elite defense, marched up and down the field in their first couple drives because they had some stuff in their back pocket that could use motions, that could use formations and kind of screw with their counts in that match quarter system. And they would make people lose running backs out of the backfield. That was how Ty Johnson got that first touchdown. They used a late motion from like a four by one. And then they made the linebackers and the safety screw up their counts in terms of who's got who. When they go to the other side of the field, they got a free touchdown out of it. Like that is the stuff 
that I think Reich also excels at, which is picking, okay, here's a thing that this defense doesn't do well. We're going to go out there. We're going to exploit this for as long as we can. But once that defense makes an adjustment, I do feel like the Colts, as you said, they don't have the talent to then just out talent people, you know, when they, when they have to get away from being cheeky and they have to just go out there and actually win in one-on-one matchups. I, I don't know if they quite have the talent yet to do that. They have some skill position players that I really like. I think Pittman's going to be a star. I really like Hines. Uh, I really like, honestly, I like their whole backfield, but I feel like they don't have the X factor quarterback. They don't have the other, other receiver. Um, I feel like Mo Ali Cox, uh, when he was making plays at tight end, like he's a size mismatch, but I don't think he's a dynamic separator in the mold of like a Kittle or a Kelsey or uh, really any of these top flight, you know, Andrews, any of these top flight tight ends. Like I, I think they kind of rely on like jump balls to that position more than just flat out going out and beating a safety or beating a linebacker one on one. The only guys that I think can really go out and win one on one against man coverage are Pittman and Hines. Everyone else, not so much. Pascal occasionally, but not consistently. And so, you know, they'll do these scheme things where it's like, oh, okay, we we see that in third and six plus, you like to play cover three. We're going to dial up this seam ball here that we know we can get, you know, Mo free on and, and just kind of throw a jump ball up to his big body in the seam and get a big gain out of it. But then you come back later in the game as third and six, and you're playing like man cover one, doesn't have the same ability to, to beat that in man coverage that he did against zone. And they don't really have an answer for that because they don't have the talent to answer that. So I think that's part of what you see is like they'll come out with a great script and then defenses will adjust, which we know the Bills defense is good at adjusting. Like I did an episode on it earlier this year where, where, with how they adjusted to the Rams running game back in week three. Like you saw in real time, Milano and Edmonds make adjustments to how to handle that inside zone run game and how they were able to fall back and completely shut it down in the second half of that game, which is why they were able to come back. Like this Bills defense makes adjustments, and I don't think the Colts offense can adjust to those adjustments because they just don't have the dudes. So if you had to make your prediction about how this game was going to go, what, what would you say in terms of game flow and what do you think? Because I'm, I'm picturing this being a game, just based on everything you're saying and everything I've looked at. This is one of those matchups where the Buffalo Bills are going to have to hang on at first. I think that Indy's going to come charging out of the gate because they know they kind of have to, especially after watching what we just did to the Miami Dolphins. <clears throat> That's arguably a better defense than what the Colts are bringing to the table. And we... Gave them the treatment that Kansas City gave you guys in the postseason last year. It, mm-hmm. it got ugly very quickly. The second things started to click, it it avalanched on them. And so with that in mind, that we have that ability, we're going to get their A game. We're going to get the best script Reich has ever come up with. Bills fans just have to, I think, hang tight while they watch Indy kind of hang around with us for a while. But I think ultimately we have the talent to compete what is your predictions for this game, and what do you think the final score is going to be? If you had to stab at it. Oh, if I had to stab – well, I have Bavada open because I'm a, de- a degenerate. Uh, <laughs> you're only favored by seven? <laughs> yeah, you know, just, just the biggest spread. Just the biggest spread of any AFC team this weekend. That's, but that's... I found that fascinating because, again, we, I mean, we've gone through – 
Defensive matchups, not in their favor. Offensive matchups, not in their favor. Like the only thing that they really win at, I think, is defensive line versus offensive line, but it's not by much because the Bills' offensive line is very good at pass protecting. This so, almost smells like a sucker's bet to me, though. Like I feel like <laughs> this is one of those things where Vegas pros are going to see the line and go, nah, you got to take Indy with that seven points. I mean, that's big. A playoff game, seven points? Do you, though? (laughs) Do you? Like, have people not watched the Bills over the last... Chris touches, turns... I I joke that he's the reverse King Midas. Everything he touches just turns to crap. Yeah, I I spent a couple of... uh most of the season betting uh, doing parlays down at the casino and i think i had a i think i had a stretch of 7 of 8 weeks in a row because that one week i won 7 of 8 weeks in a row where i just had was one wrong on my parlay and it's like every week for this kid and i asked him i go why do you keep doing this to yourself <laughs> you're if you can't pick them all and he picked the worst bad beats like BYU versus Coastal Carolina of course he took BYU like why wouldn't he oh uh. <laughs> Of course he did. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm working with over here, Brett. So I just well, well, when you look at all these playoff games, though. Okay, so you're favored by seven. Rams Seahawks. It's a four point spread in favor of Seattle. I don't want to touch that game because I think it's going to be completely unpredictable, as all NFC West games are. I'm not even going to go near it. Um, Bucks are favored by eight and a half over Washington, which Washington's sneaky with that defensive line. I don't know about that one. Ravens and Titans. I actually do agree with the Ravens being favored by three and a half over Tennessee. I, I, I think they're actually going to fight off some deep or, you know, conquer some demons and win that game against Tennessee. I think Tennessee's a little bit of a paper tiger, in my opinion. Uh, Bears are 10 point dogs against the Saints, which sounds about right to me. Browns and Steelers, I'm going nowhere near that game because we don't know what the hell's going to happen with COVID. The only game that I feel really confident in betting is Bill's Colts. It's the really? only one. Wow. Well, I'll tell you. Are you taking? You're taking the Bills, right? Yeah, I think they. I think they like seven. It doesn't. It doesn't sound right to me. I think they win somewhere between like eight and ten. All right. Well, Mr. Coleman, we appreciate it as always. You coming on here, sharing your expertise with us. Why don't you tell everybody what you have coming up on the uh, the Bootleg Football Podcast and what you have cooking in the film room? Well, ironically. I'm doing an episode probably on the results of this Bills-Colts game because I want to break down what the Colts do well on defense. And I'm assuming that the Bills are going to win. And I'm assuming that Allen's going to have a good day. So I kind of want to break down how Dable exploits you know, all of their too high stuff. I, again, I don't expect them to run the ball because defensive, their front seven is really good. But I, I am very eager to see how Dable attacks those two high coverage shells, cover two, cover four, occasional man cover two uh, with this receiving core and with Allen. Uh, I think it would be a, a fascinating look at how this team doesn't even bother running the football sometimes and focuses solely on throwing. Like that's it's kind of an underrated storyline to me is, is Dable's willingness to just completely not run the ball at all if he doesn't want to and still make it work. So I think I'm going to do an episode on that next week and then – if, as long as Buffalo keeps going, I'm still going to have reasons to make videos on them. And I really hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that we get Buffalo-Kansas City rematch in the AFC Championship game because ah, that would just be one hell of a game. All right, we appreciate the knowledge dropped by Brett Coleman. He's on Twitter at Brett Coleman. 
can follow the film room on YouTube and his bootleg football podcast. You know, we really don't have a whole lot of contacts within the AFC South. And with his channel being predominantly around the NFL, we felt like he was the best guest that we could get on such short notice to to cover the Colts. What I love, honestly, what I love about Brett is that he knows football enough to talk about football concepts and any construct you put them in. So when he you bring up, hey, on the fly, can you talk about the defense of the Colts? He's just like, oh, yeah, all quarters coverage into this and the... It's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, Chris, we're never going to be that smart. No, you're definitely not going to be smart with that sweater vest and that, that white-collared garbage shirt that you're wearing under there with no... You got no collar stays in. You look like an ass. <laughs> sweater vests are imposing. Yeah, sweater vest is cool, but it's your it's your white Oxford button down that you have under it that ruins it for you. Get some goddamn collar stays. You look like shit. I love that Chris is Chris. Well, he's wearing a cardigan. He's giving me fashion advice. Always. You know what? You know what? I don't have to take your shit because I feel pretty strong tonight, and that's because I have our keys to victory. Wow, it's a lot of keys. Bigger the keychain, more powerful the man. With the sweater vest, on, I'm going to deliver the keys to victory. And the first one, much to what what Coleman was talking about, the front seven has to dominate the middle of the offensive line. I mean, when you look at the ascending Jonathan Taylor, his rush charts from the last month. You're going to see that he's just as dynamic between the tackles as he is running off of them. And that's a testament to his blend of power and wiggle that lets him hit a gap in a place where there's going to be multiple defenders, and yet somehow he's still capable of running away from everybody. His last three games, I'm going to read it off for you. Against Jacksonville in Week 17, six rushes of five or more yards between the tackles, one touchdown, three of them went for more than 15 yards. Against Pittsburgh, three rushes of five or more yards between the tackles and two touchdowns. Against Houston, the week before that, six rushes of five or more yards and one touchdown between the tackles. This is where our defense is going to have to stand tall. It's going to be on Oliver, Butler, and Jefferson to make life hard on that offensive line. And Milano and Edward... Edmonds are going to have to fill the appropriate gaps. Man that part of the field well. What you're going to force them to do is try to run off tackle. And the one thing our safeties do very well is get down in the run game quickly. Right? Yeah. Poyer, again, got robbed of a Pro Bowl nod, even though he's, what, he's tops in, I think, for safeties? He's Maybe. Either, I don't know his stats. Either first or second in tackles because he's so active in the run game. Because he can come from the back end of the defense all the way to the line of scrimmage quickly and with power. If you can do that and rein them in in the middle of the field and not let them get that in-between-the-tackles rushing game going, I like our chances because they're going to have to run stretches. And also, clean up those missed tackles that we were talking about earlier. Number two, play Rivers the way you played Big Ben. When we beat Pittsburgh, we pulled away offensively because our defense was able to squat on the Steelers' short and intermediate routes and keep them from moving the ball consistently in the passing game. You you dared them to throw it deep. And look, 
the game ceiling interception happened when we frustrated him so much that he finally just took a he threw up a 50-50 ball and our guy made a play. So like that play uh against Sunday night against the Steelers where Trey White just took down uh Chase Claypool at the line. Yeah. So if we're going to need to do that. Yes. You're going to need to squat on this team. And within 15 yards of the line of scrimmage, you're going to have to be strong inside that box. The good news for us is that it's the strength of our defense. The athleticism and size of our linebackers and safeties, it makes those windows in that area incredibly small to throw into. It's why you watch, Chris, some of the best quarterbacks in football struggle to move the ball against this defense. It's because the windows over the middle are incredibly tight. Almost non-existent. And then on the boundaries, if you want to test our cornerbacks, you can you can go at Levi Wallace, but he's going to have safety help over the top. So even if you beat him, you're not going to burn him for a long touchdown. You're just going to move the chains. Meanwhile, on the other side of the field, you're not throwing at Trey White. Because that could easily just as it could be broken up. Your guy could be 100% covered. It could be an interception. Trey White's a machine. We thrive in this. And I feel like if you play the same game, like, think about this. You cover the flats in the shallow areas, and Milano and Edmonds are going to be paramount to this. Clean zone coverage from them in order to deter Rivers from using the middle of the field. When you do that, he's not turnover prone, but that's because he's almost turnover avoidant. And when you try to, when you actively avoid throwing into risk areas, Guess what? The Bills create a lot of those. We're going to make you dink and dunk your way down the field. Good luck if you think you can run 14 play drives for an entire game. We'll stop you at some point. And then the third is Josh Allen. I got to crack a fresh beer for this. You're not even half done with that. Yeah, but I'm going to two-fist my way through this. I want to say, I know that it's low-hanging fruit to say that my quarterback has to play good to win a playoff game. But I want you all to sit back with a fresh beer and shut up and let me explain what I'm talking about because this is my fucking podcast and I'll do what I want. 2020 has been a case study in maturation for Josh Allen. And if you ask anyone, we'll tell you that the moment it all started. It wasn't the summer training sessions with his teammates. It wasn't the acquisition of Diggs. It was the immediate aftermath of that 2019 Houston loss. Chris, you remember the look on his face. Yeah, that look. It's all over the uh, the Twitter machine. Now it is. It's, yeah, it's the moment that Josh Allen became Josh Allen. We watched a young kid get to the podium and with flushed cheeks and just he's all sweaty and he doesn't look comfortable and he tells us all that he's sorry that he let everyone down. Not that... Hey, this didn't go right, and this didn't go right, but I'm going to improve. It was just, I'm sorry. I did bad. I'm going to do better. He was humbled in front of all of us, but resolute that he would do whatever he could to never have to feel that way again. And from that moment, whether it was the off-season training, whether it was all the stuff he sought out on his own away from the football team, Chris... He did the thing, like, I hate to say it, but it's like something out of one of those crappy anime movies where, like, oh, 
Oh, I am not strong enough. I must go to the mountains and train and I will be back. I'll be back to be the grand champion. And he leaves. And then he comes back out of the fog and you're like, oh shit, who's that? Oh, it's the same guy, but he's not the same guy. <laughs> and he just starts dunking all over people. It, it's bad. From that moment, he poured every ounce of himself into being the best quarterback he possibly could be, from mechanics to chemistry with his offensive coordinator and wide receivers. This week, he was asked during his Zoom session with the local media if he still thinks that the about that playoff loss. I was watching that live th- today from a Zoomer. I was watching that. I, w- I got up out of my desk chair, and I almost ran through the uh, my front door. This was his answer. It still lingers a little bit. I'm glad I can't change it. A lot of lessons to learn from that game. Without failure, people don't know success. <sighs> yeah. That right there is the growth that we needed. To know the taste of failure on a grand stage in front of everybody, and instead of running from it, to harness it and bend that to your will. 2019 Josh Allen feels like a bad dream. I don't even remember it anymore. That panicky kid that we saw who would run around sprinting out of clean pockets, throwing laterals. <laughs> the pass, the pass to DeMarco. Oh, up, yeah. And up the seam into double coverage to a fullback. Yeah. That quarterback's gone. He's been replaced by a quarterback who, with a smile on his face, has demolished every obstacle that 2020 has put in front of him. He's not rattleable. I don't even know if that's a word. Rattleable anymore. There's no fear in Josh Allen. I mean, this is a direct quote from Deion Dawkins' letter in the Players' Tribune this week, which if you haven't read it ahead of this playoff game, you'd be doing yourself a, a gross disservice not to do it. He was talking about Josh Allen and why he's the MVP. Why he thinks he's the MVP. And he says, it's like just the way Josh walks into a huddle or the way he carries himself on the sideline or in a meeting or in the locker room. It's the emotion that he knows how and when to show if things go good or even more important, if things go bad. That's Deion Dawkins' words, not mine. He's become both the on-field and emotional leader of this football team. It's clear that instead of carrying him, the team now feeds off him. It's in every post-game interview on ESPN or NBC when players come running into his interviews and he doesn't give a shit about it. It's the way they joke and carry on together in practices. The way that they're loose in tight moments where other teams would choke. Because they trust that Josh Allen has a plan and he's gonna he's gonna lead them. That Rams game. That Rams game. They asked Tyler Croft in the aftermath of that. Were you worried? And he goes, No, because Josh told me what the play was. <laughs> I knew what my job was. I was just gonna make sure it happened. <laughs> if it was my number that got called, I was gonna make sure it happened. This team has become a mirror image of his execution, his will, and his fearlessness. Saturday, against this team, Josh has to be just that, unafraid of the moment, unafraid of a repeat of last year's disappointment. 
the same way he is resoundingly over the last month in on a national stage. Chris, we all waited for the inevitable implosion. And instead, it almost seems like Josh waited for the lights to get bright and then said, okay, you guys want to see? He rubbed his hands and goes, do you, get, you guys want to see something crazy? <laughs> watch, watch me work. <sighs> I mean, that's what's propelled him into the MVP conversation. Albeit, regardless of circumstances, you dig deep, he digs deeper than his opponents and finds plays that not only propel our offense, but that make our defense believe that no game is unwinnable. And therefore, their only option is to fight for 60 minutes because if they can put up four quarters of solid play against anybody, Josh Allen will inevitably find a way to win that football game. Jerry Hughes talked about it multiple times this year in his post-game pressers. and He goes, we just trust that Josh will figure it out. We feed off him. Guys not even in his huddle take his energy and apply it to the field. This team will go to war to the last man for our quarterback. Chris, I for our, for my fellow dorks out there, I want to throw this out here. I've been I've been picturing this in my head all day. It's like the Lord of the Rings when uh, Elrond brings Aragorn Andril, the sword, <laughs> the the blade that was broken formed into the new sword, and he tells him, "It's time to put aside the ranger and become the king." It's time for Josh Allen to put aside this youthful project quarterback label. The source of, stop being the source of memes and jokes and shade thrown at this franchise and become the champion of men that he's shown us he's capable of being. If he brings that attitude, that swagger, that execution to the field against Indianapolis, I don't care what their team does. (laughs) He has it. This team will follow him like an avalanche. And whether it's by a single point or by a landslide, I don't know how we don't close the afternoon with our first playoff win since 95. If Josh Allen shows up as that guy, I don't care about what he does schematically. It's about him being the emotional leader of this football team. If he goes out there and he is the unflappable guy he's been on national TV for the last month, Chris, we're celebrating our first win since the mid-90s. What's that worth to you? <laughs> a lot. I had a bull haircut. I was 11. I had no friends. Oh, I'm hoping we win this game. <sighs> Your prediction for the game, sir? Well, as I see here on the weather channel, 30 degrees. Some clouds in the morning will give way to mainly sunny skies for the afternoon. Who's the one asshole that we've uh, kind of talked about this uh, year on the podcast? Keyshawn Johnson. <laughs> they don't have any. They don't have any signature wins. Saturday signature win thirty four thirteen Buffalo. Wow. <laughs> I'm not going to make a score prediction. Instead, what I'm going to say is this: No, because Chris. <laughs> well, yes, I'm willing to. I'm willing to take that for a minute. Of course, you're not going to give us a prediction. You're wearing a sweater vest and an Oxford with no collar stays. I feel like Peter Venkman from Ghostbusters in this moment right here. We're about to try to cross the streams, Chris. <laughs> and everyone says it's a terrible idea. You don't cross the streams. 
oh, this could be bad. Guess what? We're going to go into the playoffs against a well-rounded team. Guess what? There are no easy matchups. They're all hard from here because you're playing the NFL's best. We went matchup hunting and got handed a gem in a team that's well-rounded, but they're a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Go beat this team handily. Go beat them and prove that you are who we think you are. Like I said, I feel like Peter Venkman, where you're about to cross the streams, you're just like, look, what what happens? Oh, complete protonic reversal? Oh, so we're going to be erased from the planet. If we lose this game, the Buffalo Bills will be a joke. Everything we accomplish this year will be, it will, it's going to evaporate very quickly. And yet, I'm not afraid. I'll say this. I'm, I'm excited. I'm, be, I'm excited to be a part of this plan. And I'll see you all on the other side. With that, we've got to get the hell out of here. Huge thank you to Brett Coleman for showing up tonight, walking us through this matchup. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. We'll see you guys next week. And this has been your Rockpile Report. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.